Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this series, I look at one small slice of American writing, giving my commentary and thoughts on it. I use the Library of America as my main source material. And right now, I am doing a bit of a mini-series on turn-of-the-century black writers. And today, I'll be beginning a look at the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois, collected in the Library of America, um, volume of his of his collected works. Um, so far, this is the only volume we have of, of Du Bois's writing um, by, that, by the Library of America. And there's a lot of great stuff that Du Bois wrote that isn't included in here, unfortunately, and that's something I'll get to in a little bit. All right, so what do we have in this, this volume? First of all, it's a rather thick one. It, it's not one of the thickest but it, it's up there it's it's 1300 pages altogether so it's in contrast the charles chestnut volume i've just i just finished had around 900 pages um and most of the library of america volumes you know kind of are between 800 and around 1300 pages a handful are a little bit shorter and a few go up to 1500 or so i think at that point they really can't bind it together that well <clears throat> so what, what do we have here we have well three books are included in here and then probably around 400 pages of essays and articles the first book in, in what i'm going to start looking at a little bit more detail today is the suppression of the african slave trade now this is du bois's phd dissertation it was published in 1890 well it was published in 1896 and 1895 was the year that the dissertation was written so this is a revised dissertation but we can imagine not revised very much as commonly happens you know dissertations get published with with slight revisions or or just a handful this is very this book is very very dissertation-y it's very technical in fact, I, I question why it's included here, not because it's not valuable and doesn't have good things to say. It's just compared to other, even historical works by Du Bois, this wouldn't be on top of my list. Okay, so that's the first book here. Then we have, oh, and by the way, that's about 400 pages, but about half of it is footnotes and appendices. After that, we have The Souls of Black Folk, a collection of essays, uh, and really one of his most, his greatest works. Then we have another collection of essays, Dusk of Dawn, which is partially a collection of essays, partially an autobiography. I think he was originally intended to write that as a collection of essays like Souls of Black Folk, but really for the situation in the 1940s, and it ended up being more autobiographical. Then we have a bunch of his essays and articles. Of, I think it's around 25 or so essays. Some very long, some rather short. And then we have a bunch of short articles from the crisis, which, of course, Du Bois edited for a long period of time, and he was a major contributor to that. So that's what we got. And obviously, what don't we have here? Well, quite a lot, to be honest. So what is missing? Well, just off the top of my head, we have his biography of John Brown is not included. We have Darkwater, which is a collection of essays written in 1920. In fact, it's part of a trilogy. There was... Dusk of Dawn was the last, then 
Darkwater in 1920, and then 1903 was the Social Black Folk. So they they were kind of worked together as a, you know, every few years he got back down and collected his essays, kind of giving a statement of the way things, um, the race relations stood at that time. So we don't got the Darkwater. We don't have any of his fiction, which he wrote quite a lot of, The Quest of the Silver Fleece. Uh, certainly in Souls of Black Folk, we have one fictional tale, but that's the only fiction we're going to have in this this series. Dark Princess. And, and then the big one, which is Black Reconstruction in America, published in 1935. He wrote some stuff on Africa as well, but it's really Black Reconstruction in America, which has not been included here. And that's really the shame. I, I really do hope the Library of America comes back to Du Bois to include maybe Dark Water and Black Reconstruction in America and the John Brown biography at least, if not some other things. I'd like to see, to know his, his fiction as well. Um, certainly he was a prolific writer and he wrote on many different subjects and, you know, experimented in different approaches, more creative nonfiction, serious academic stuff, pure fiction. So he's worthy of, I think, of a, of a broader look at his his career, but I really can't do that given the framework of this of this podcast. Um, so what I think I'm going to do is is go through these what's in this volume I mean, in my normal format, and then do a couple episodes where I talk about Black Reconstruction in America as a bit of an add-on because I think it's so important to that that work is so crucial, not just because of what what it says about Du Bois's ideas and how they changed over time and in you know, it gives us a good window into what he was thinking in the 1930s. But it's just such an important work in the historiography of Reconstruction. And seeing as Library of America has just released a volume, I haven't seen it yet, but they've just released a volume of writings from Reconstruction. I think this is, they finished their Civil War series. So this is kind of their, their add-on to that. With that, and of course, if you study Reconstruction, one of the issues you come across is that most historians for much of the 20th century looked at Reconstruction as a period of corruption, a failure, of oppression by the Republican Party against a, a defeated South, and tended to ignore the black experience in Reconstruction. <clears throat> and then it was really Du Bois who changed that. Of course, he wasn't listened to at the time. Not many historians paid attention to him, and it wasn't until really the 80s and 90s that you started getting a rewriting of Reconstruction to be more sympathetic and to appreciate it more really as a revolutionary moment in, in American history. So anyways, um, that's my thoughts on that and how I'm going to try to address what I think is a, is really an important work that's missing. I understand just in terms of publication, it would have been hard to fit it in just the bulk of it because black reconstruction in America is fairly lengthy, but I, I think he's worthy of two volumes is the way I would have dealt with that. Okay, so um, this this book um, we're going to start with the suppression of the African slave trade. I mean, I guess it's nice it's here because I, I don't know how, how how often people would read this otherwise if it wasn't included in a collection like this. It's not the kind of thing you'd you'd pick up. Um, it's it's a history dissertation. I, I don't know what else to say uh, in a way of introduction. It's. It's looking. It's about law, really, and it's about the question of how the slave trade throughout American history, going back to the colonial period, really beginning with the early English trading companies, how they regulated the slave trade. 
and how those regulations changed over time, how they varied between different colonies and how the U.S. government tried to deal with this and then how the British and then eventually after 1808, the United States contributed in efforts to suppress the international slave trade. So it's interesting that he's starting with like a really a legal history here. He's not really talking about much about the realm of ideas, about philosophy. He doesn't even say much about slavery or the experience of enslaved men and women on the slave ship or in the Middle Passage. He essentially is, is mostly talking about the law, the law surrounding slavery. And it's so technical and it's so matter of fact and it's so detailed. In fact, half of the book is literally just lists of these laws selections of these laws in, in a very complete documentation of what he's trying to say. The evidence he's, he's, he's uh, the, the points he's trying to make in the, in the text of the book that it kind of is still a good place to go. Just if you want to know these laws and there's, I've never seen such a complete analysis of the laws about the slave trade. And so this would be of interest also to people like even lawyers maybe, but certainly people dealing with immigration law and questions of, of that because, of course, the laws against the slave trade or supporting the slave trade were all connected to immigration law, essentially. And that's how it was framed in the Constitution. It's only at the end of the book that he starts to make kind of moral, political, and practical questions and starts to ask about what, you know, what can we learn from this to our current problem. Of course, there was no slave trade at the time, so that, you know, but I think his main concern here is to what degree can the law be used as a weapon against you know, racism in the United States? And so that's why he goes back to the kind of the deep roots of law. And I, he sees law here as a proactive force and something that, that can reveal ideals and to show the gap between ideals and, and the reality on the ground at times. So it's, it's kind of legally optimistic, I think. Now, the way the book is structured is it has, it's in nine chapters. Oh, sorry, not nine. No. Let's turn the page here. Uh, Twelve chapters. Uh, and the 12 chapters are broken up into 96 subparts. And he numbers them throughout, so he doesn't renumber the subsections. So it's very much, again, it, it's presented very technically. So we have 96 subsections, each only, a, some just of half a page some a couple pages but nothing you know they're all little snapshots um then after these 12 chapters 96 segments we have four appendices and these appendices are one is like the colonial and state laws on the slave trade and it's just a chronological list of these so he starts with the first and then he just goes throughout time and he lists them as they come up providing some of the text, not the whole text, but, you know, just I just opened up randomly to a page. So we got the 1759 November, Virginia, the 20 percent duty act. Right. And of course, there's a lot in this act, but he only includes the stuff related to the slave trade. That's relevant. So if you need the text for these laws, they're right here for you. Of course, he, he abridges them just to include the sections about, about slavery, but it's very detailed in that sense. So that's the first appendix. The second appendix is a chronological consensus of state, national, international legislation. So the first one does this with state level and the colonial level. This does it really more the imperial and the national level from 1788 to 1871. 
when this oh so I, I see it here so a is really up to the revolution and b goes from the revolution to 1871 c is a list of legal cases brought against american slave ships or ships engaged in the american slave trade then appendix d is a bibliography <clears throat> so again very dissertation -y. i'm not going to go through the appendices very much here um but i will spend a couple of episodes just talking about what's in the main chapters the main content of this of this book so in the introduction to this book chapter one is also the introduction he starts with the plan for the monograph he just kind of summarizes what he's going to do and then he talks about the emergence of of the english slave trade and he connects this to the 1713 signing of the asiento which was this trade pact trade deal free trade agreement of, of sorts between England and Spain, which gave England basically the rights to engage in the slave trade in its own colonies, as well as the, the Spanish colonies. And this led to an increase of, of English activity in, in the slave trade. And then he talks about some of the English laws that, that backed that up and supported these trading companies. Um, his, his real point here is to provide, kind of provide the broad picture of the growth of especially the English slave trade, and then to emphasize just how central slavery was to the colonies. And I think here Du Bois may have been making a significant contribution to historical writing at the time in the fact that seeing the slave trade and, and the slave economy it doesn't say much actually about the day-to-day -day plantation slavery in the New World, but he does acknowledge it really as the cornerstone of these, these American... Uh, holdings by these English American holdings. Quote, the colonists themselves declared slaves to be the strength and sinews of this Western world and the lack of them a great obstruction here as the settlements cannot sustain without supplies of them. Thus with merchants climbing at home and planters abroad, it easily became the subtle policy of England to encourage the slave trade, end quote. So we got the demand for slavery by the colonies. And then the question is, how is this going to be legally managed by, by the British empire and so that's what he's going to spend much of the rest of the first half of the book looking at to looking at is what was the relationship between the colonies and england and how did the slave trade fit into that into this kind of trade regimen now chapter two the the called the chapter called the planting colonies it, it has seven seven parts to it so it's parts three through nine and it looks at Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland. Now, of course, if you remember from any just basic, you know, grade school history class, the South was where slavery was most established, although slavery was throughout the colonies, something Du Bois makes clear the reader understands. It was more deeply entrenched in the South. Now, why does he say this is? Well, he ties it both to climate and character. And he doesn't just think it's all about climate. He does think there are cultural characteristics, although he doesn't develop that. He, he's, he doesn't really have the space or the, at this moment, the interest in doing that. But he does see it as both a climate issue and a, and a character and a social issue. Quote, theirs was the only soil, climate, and society suited to slavery. In these other colonies, with few exceptions, the institution was at the same, by the same factors, doomed from the beginning. Hence, only strong moral and political motives could do the planting could in the planting colonies overthrow or check a traffic so favored by the mother country. So that's really key, I think, to Du Bois's argument here. And maybe we could almost stop 
because this comes right down to it, that the law is is reflect or the reality on the ground, the economic needs is driving policy more than the other way around. Yes, I do think he's got a little bit of legal optimism in this book in the sense he focuses on that as an agent of change. But as we see here, he really thinks that it's, you know, the, the kind of the, the economic needs for slavery is going to twist and, you know, transform policy in the legal re regimen. So it actually starts with an example of the failure of law. So it's easier to talk about this in terms of, of examples. He, instead of starting like with Virginia, you might expect, well, why doesn't he start with like the earliest colonies or something? Well, he starts, he, his main interest is, is laws that try to regulate and manage and prevent sl the slave trade. So he starts with Georgia because Georgia was originally conceived of as a colony for poor English people to to move to it was conceived of originally by as a free colony that wouldn't have slavery and of course that didn't last georgia eventually became a slave colony so why is this well he basically sees how the society as it developed circumvented the law and the the legal apparatuses the courts the means of enforcing this law this ideal of a slaveless society in georgia it wasn't backed up by any actual physical force or legal, you know, state power. In South Carolina, the major issue of of managing and limiting the importation of slaves comes after the Stoner Rebellion. This was a significant slave revolt in 1740 that emerged due to, or at least it was seen as being brought on by kind of importing too many slaves. Uh, I think the slaves at the Stone Rebellion were mostly African, so they weren't Caribbean slaves. Um, and it was a scary insurrection anyway, especially because by that point, South Carolina had a black majority. So the one res response to this was efforts to try to limit um, the slave trade and to bring in and encourage white white servants, white indigenous servants and, and and others to come in. So this is kind of how the book reads. It's, it's really looking at why restrictions emerged. And what we find in the first few chapters is that these are mostly local colonial level prohibitions. They're, re they're really local. They're, they're, they're focused on these, you know, one or two ports. Quote, how he concludes the section, quote, we find in the planting colonies all degrees of advocacy of the trade from the passiveness of Maryland to the clamor of Georgia. Opposition to the trade did not appear in Georgia, was based almost solely on the political fear of insurrection in Carolina and sprang largely from the same motive in Virginia, mingled with some moral repugnance. As a whole, it may be said that whatever opposition to the slave trade there w was in the planting colonies was based principally on the political fear of insurrection. So that's his, his, his conclusion there. But um, what we learn here is that the economic need and the economic drive of white settlers wanting to profit from slavery would always be more powerful than the laws passed. And the really lesson of that is Georgia. Now, in chapter three and chapter four, we start to get to morally based legal prohibitions on slavery. Um, and he breaks up the rest of the American colonies into the farming colonies. 
of Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, and New York, and then the trading colonies of essentially New England. So he does think that it is in, in the middle colonies where we start to see debates about regulating the slave trade or limiting it or stopping importation that are not just based on fear of rebellion or efforts to create, in, like in the case of Georgia, a utopia for poor whites, but actually coming from a moral disgust with the institution of slavery. And his evidence for this is essentially the Quakers, and he, he quotes a few Quakers, um, but that's really it um, for that. So for the trading colonies, New England, here slavery was never is nearly as deeply entrenched. So the efforts to regulate slavery weren't as, or the, regulate the slave trade weren't as important because there was just so little importation into New England in the first place. And this almost creates cover then for a much stronger moralism about slavery coming out of the lawmakers of, of New England. So then he's able to talk about how the Puritans and other Christian voices in New England, you know, pass laws limiting the importation of slaves based on Christianity or moral precepts. And so what's the overall picture we get of this kind of scan over the colonies? It's essentially that that moralism is something that can be applied when it's economically convenient. Right. It's really the economics, the, the, the social need is driving the law. And, you know, the law in, in a situation where slavery is not that important, then, yeah, the social elite have the flexibility to be moralistic about the evils of slavery in South Carolina, in Virginia. They can't do that quite so much. So there it gets framed as how do we protect ourselves from a dangerous situation that will be brought by importing too many enslaved men and women. And even in the case of New England, Du Bois ends up very pessimistic, saying he writes, Here too, a feeble moral opposition was early aroused, but it was swept away by the immense economic advantages of the slave traffic to the thrifty seafaring community of traders. This trade, no moral suasion, not even a strong liberty cry for the revolution, was able to wholly suppress until the closing of the West Indian and Southern markets cut off the demand for slaves. End quote. So again, economics talks and then in chapter five we have the period of the revolution which really covers 1774 until the constitution is ratified so he's interested really in the articles of confederation period with with the f a few years before really the period in which you have efforts at creating a national government so i guess that does begin in 1774 with uh, the continental congresses so what did the Continental Congresses and the Article of Confederation Governments do about slavery? Well, Du Bois first talks a little bit about the, I guess he doesn't come out directly, but it's certainly a subtext that's hard to avoid, is just the overall hypocrisy of, of the American revolutionaries maintaining a slave trade, at the same time calling for liberty. But the other thing is that so much of the slave trade was managed by Great Britain, who they were at war with. So you'd expect a lot of the slave trade into the colonies to go down. And there wouldn't have been much for Congress to manage and think about in this respect, right? At least until the American merchant fleet was going on its own and doing its own kind of slave trading, which really wasn't a priority of the, of the government. 
he does think that open in the opening years of the American Revolution, there wasn't much demand for slaves. And he, he has a couple of reasons for this. One is slavery really wasn't spreading in the northern colonies. In fact, by the end of the revolution, in many of the northern states, it would be abolished. Then you have like kind of the philosophy of the revolution, rights and freedoms and all that stuff. There's a greater, there was fear of enslaved insurrection. And there's some truth to this, of course. The British did try to take advantage of slaves to weaken support. You know, there was Lord Dunmore's proclamation is the best example of that, which was an effort to try to basically arm slaves and give slaves who serve the British freedom. And, if, you know, by the end of the American Revolution, something like 25% of, of American slaves ran away. So there was this fear of, of creating more tension and more conflict by bringing in uh, more people. And then he also points out that the slave stocks were basically already already overstocked. There, there was actually too many. The market was already a bit flooded with slaves, so there wasn't that much need to bring any in. Plus, you had the war, which would have gotten in the way. So the conclusion he comes to after looking at the laws that are passed is the Articles of Confederation actually did very little about the slave trade. He really only finds three things. He finds this whole issue, which really isn't about the slave trade directly, but it is about human trafficking. Um, so I don't know. It's it's not about like importing from Africa or the Caribbean. It's it's about what to do with slaves who are captured. So I guess that would be a type of trafficking. So at least if you captured a slave ship, for instance, uh, American privateers captured a slave ship from England. What do you do with them? You know, where do they go? So. Congress had to pass some kind of law managing that and figuring out what to do with that. Those slaves. Then there was Quakers who were petitioning Congress to end the slave trade, and they had to deal with those. And then there was the whole issue of taxation and how to count slaves and freedmen. You know, are, are they counted or not? This is, of course, an issue that's famously addressed in the Constitution. So there really wasn't that much about the regulation of the slave trade, certainly no suppression of it by the Articles of Confederation government, even though there may have been an overall feeling that importing fewer slaves would be better because of just the fear of slave insurrection was coming back up, especially with the large number of runaways and um, the, the fear that slaves would serve the British and things like that. In fact, the British counted on this a lot. One of the reasons they went to move to the South after their defeat in the middle colonies, they started, they fought in Charleston and, you know, worked down there was they thought the larger number of slaves and there'd be more loyalists down here in general. But many of them, many of these loyalists, they thought would have been slaves who didn't want to fight for their masters and would have fought for, for the British. Although that strategy failed, there was some truth to it. In fact, in some of these southern colonies, states, by that point, you know, 25, 30 percent of slaves had run away. Really, it's an open slave revolt in a lot of places. Now, the next chapter, chapter six, is on the federal convention and the Constitution. And there's really only one provision that matters in respect to the slave trade. And that is, how is it said? It's Article One, Section Nine. Quote, the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit, nor shall be prohibited by Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person, end quote. So what this passage says, 
what this law says, provision in the Constitution, that Congress can't ban the slave trade until 1808. It's, it's a compromise. Congress would eventually prohibit the slave trade in, in 1808. So this is this, uh, an essential promise that would be done. But until 1808, Congress can't pass this law. So that's what it is. Um, it certainly was a compromise. There are other provisions about slavery in the Constitution. There was a fugitive slave law and there was the three-fifths clause. But this is the one that really deals with the slave trade. Now, Du Bois goes a little bit farther and in, in does take on the state-by-state -state attitude towards this provision. Now, you know, eventually all the states ratified the Constitution, so it's not like any one state threw out the baby with the bathwater here because they, they had opposition to this one provision. Uh, Rhode Island, for instance, wanted to see the slave trade banned entirely before they agreed to it. South Carolina opposed this clause altogether because they didn't want to see. Um, they thought it was an attack on their wealth and their prosperity to end the slave trade. So there were kind of states had different approaches to it. But essentially this was passed and in 1808 Congress would pass a law ending the slave trade. So that, that kind of brings us to the midway point of Du Bois' story because after from this point on it's really about the managing of of the, the suppression, both by England and, and by the United States in the first half of the 19th, 19th century. But he gives, he, first he gives us chapter seven, which is a really interesting contribution. It's called Toussaint L'Ouverture and the Anti-Slavery Effort. And this talks about how the Haitian Revolution sped along and encouraged the debate about suppressing the slave trade. And I think Du Bois here is making a really interesting contribution by showing Haiti as something that's really shaping policy across the Atlantic, as a nation that's shaping policy across the Atlantic. We take this for granted now, and a lot of a lot of historical writing, anyways, takes it for granted, the centrality of Haiti to Atlantic history. But it's it's significant that in 1895 here, Du Bois is putting the events in Haiti as a centerpiece of policymaking on both sides of the Atlantic. He even starts the chapter by saying, quote, the role which the great Negro Toussaint called L'Ouverture played in the history of the United States has seldom been fully appreciated. Representing the great age of revolution in America, he rose to leadership through a bloody terror which contrived a Negro problem for the Western Hemisphere, intensified and defined the anti-slavery movement, became one of the causes, and probably the prime one, that led Napoleon to sell Louisiana for a song, and finally, through the interworkings of all these efforts, rendered more certain the final prohibition of the slave trade by the United States in 1807. So in this, Du Bois summarizes essentially his whole argument for Chapter 7, which is how the events in Haiti sparked a whole new round of debate about the slave trade and eventually culminated in the, the final 1808 prohibition. I think what he wants to say here, it wasn't inevitable that the constitutional provision that says Congress won't touch the slave trade in 1808, it may not have passed had it not been for what happened in Haiti. And I, I think that's a, a fairly significant and very radical argument that's giving a lot of power to this nation of former slaves in, in Haiti. Now, the other thing pushing 
efforts to to fulfill this this kind of implied promise in the Constitution to, to end the slave trade in 1808. The other thing pushing that was growing organized anti-slavery activism by both blacks and whites. And so Du Bois talks about that too. And then he gets to these different debates about the slave trade in different states. And it's all pretty dry and banal stuff. A lot of it has to do with tax policy because, of course, that's in the Constitution that Congress can't stop it, the slave trade, but they can tax it. They can kind of regulate it through taxation. So, yeah, there, in a sense, the, this period from 1887 to 1807 don't see the end of the slave trade. Of course, that's kind of written, written in the Constitution to begin with, but it does see revolution in Haiti, uh, greater fear about slave insurrection, greater organization of anti-slavery forces, and kind of the momentum began, which did lead ultimately to the Act of 1807, which would end, which would end the slave trade. And so that's where I'll, I'll leave off. That gets us about halfway through his, his story, or the first 100 pages or so. In the second half of this book, he's going to look at various efforts to suppress the slave trade in, in the years after 1808. And then also look at how an internal slave trade emerged. And then, you know, how all, how all of this contributed to the ultimate, the final crisis, the sectional crisis that brought upon the Civil War and the end of slavery. So what to say about this book from, from the first half? Well, like I, like I said, I, I think it's actually pretty fascinating. It's here. Again, it's not the book I would have picked of his to include here if I had to only had 1300 pages to fill. But... I, I think it's it's actually pioneering a lot of ideas we take for granted now in Atlantic history. And I'd have to go back and look at what other historians were writing at the time to see how unique or cutting edge Du Bois was at this time. But, you know, these are things that, you know, I think are, I mean, most historians do accept now. You know, the importance of Haiti in changing American attitudes about slavery. You know, the, the failure of the moral argument, right? The power of the economic argument, right? It, it, yeah, it has a bit of a Marxist point of view in it that that the power of the market is, is going to trump morality. And, you know, that, that is what it is. So anyways, I'm going to leave it at, at that and I'll come back and say some more about this book in the next episode. So thank you so much for, for listening. If you have any your own feelings about this book, if you've read this book, if you know, I'd be, I'd love to hear from you. Um, I suspect most of us haven't uh, taken a look at this particular work. I mean, even if you get this volume, it's like, do you really read this? You want to jump to Souls of Black Folk, I think, which is such a brilliant work. Yeah, we don't get the feeling of Du Bois's kind of brilliance, his wonderful prose writing, his, you know, the poetry of his of his prose isn't really on display yet it is very academic very dry very technical but it's it seems to be pretty innovative i think at least especially for its time so worth checking out at least just to skim through so again thank you so much for listening i'll be back next time with part two of the suppression of the slave trade by I see Moonlight I'm walking
this body down.